You've given to us this which is, by your declaration, the very word of God. So I pray that we take it up as such, not flippantly at all, but with a great seriousness and expectation to say, yes, you, God, will speak to us today as we read, today as we think upon this word, that you, God, have a word for us, that you wish for us to hear from you. Thus, we pray that through this word, you would speak to us. And in your speaking, that we may know you better, that we may love you more, that we may live in such a way that expresses who you are. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to John, John's Gospel in chapter 21. I want to read beginning with verse 15. I'll read us through the end of the chapter, though um, that's more than we'll be able to think about today. John chapter 21, please, verse 15. This is uh, the word of God. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Oh, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, it's my will that he should remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. So saying, so the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Well, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. We know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did for every one of them to be written. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, we took up this chapter 21 last Sunday, and we mentioned that um, it it seemed a a bit of an add-on, though we realized it wasn't. It seemed a bit of an add-on because it seemed as if John had finished in chapter 20 when Thomas made the great declaration that climax really of of everything that John had been writing uh, about that this one Jesus is now we know as we read through the whole gospel now we know that this Jesus is um, 
my Lord and my God. And John even provided at the very end there of chapter 20 his, his purpose statement. He, he wrote this gospel so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that there is life by believing in his name. So as we get the sense that it was all wrapped up and ready to go. But, but there was one more thing that not only took place, but that John sensed a need by the Holy Spirit to report to us something that had happened. And it was important for us, is important for us, to really see that. And, and, and there's a sense, you see, as we were reading through John's gospel, beginning in chapter 13, those chapters 13 through 16 that we looked at prior to Easter, that, 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 that Jesus was preparing his disciples for life without him. Without him, not utterly, because he would be present with them by his spirit, but, but without him physically, tangibly there. Jesus would die, Jesus would rise, they'd see him, but then he would ascend and and, and life would would really be lived generation after generation after generation without the visible presence of Jesus. That was his remark to Thomas. Thomas, you believe you've seen, that's good, but blessed are those who believe and have not seen. You see, that would be the truth. That would be the norm for everybody after the ascension of Jesus. So what would life be like? What was life going to be like, really, after Jesus ascended, when when they didn't have him right there to see and to touch and to hear and all that? What would life really be like? Well, Well, Jesus meets his disciples at the Sea of Galilee and has breakfast with them and all of that. But we see really here two images of life lived in the context of the ascended Jesus. This is rather a a, a, a short snippet, but, 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 but we see really in a very real sense in this one chapter of John's gospel, the whole book of Acts. We see really life lived as the church of Jesus Christ. And I say that because he uses two images Remember, they're fishing. They catch nothing. Jesus is on the shore. He's not in the boat. It's a bit of deja vu uh, because there was a time early in the, in the disciples' life with Jesus that, that he met them at the same place. And they were fishing and they hadn't caught anything. And Jesus was in the boat with them. But he says, I'm right here. You can hear my voice. So put the, uh, you put your net out, you see. And, and they did, and they caught a lot of fish, so many that the net's broke and so forth. On this occasion, Jesus isn't in the boat. He's on the shore. They don't really know that he's present. They know someone's on the shore, but they don't know it's Jesus. They're not thinking in that regard. And this person on the shore says, put your net out on the other side. They do. Boom, they catch 153 fish, huge fish. And they, they recognize, oh, we've seen this before. Oh, who? oh, that's Jesus. And on the first occasion, uh, Jesus had said, I- I'm going to enable you to catch men. And that's exactly what we see, you see, that will take place. They will catch men. They will be fishers of men. In fact, as the book of Acts opens, uh, Jesus tells his disciples that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they were, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And in witnessing, they'll catch people. And they did, right? 
In Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved as Peter preached. Uh, they, would, they would remain there. There would be that great miracle by, by, by the temple with a man who, 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 who was lame would be able to walk. And they would be able to testify of Jesus. And through that experience, others would come to faith as well. Ananias and Sapphira, you might remember that story. Uh, there, they had lied to the Holy Spirit and they died. And in the midst of that, even by the testimony of the power of God and the apostles, others came. There were fishers of men in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria. Persecution came and, and, and folks, believers in Jesus, were forced out of Jerusalem. Philip went to Samaria, preached, and then Peter and John came to that very place and laid hands so that the Holy Spirit would come in that place. Another Pentecost, if you will, another coming of the Spirit, another more being added to the number who were being saved. And then, and then Peter gets this great vision uh, where Jesus tells him to go to the household of Cornelius, this Gentile, uh, the ends of the earth, if you will, this Gentile, and, and Pentecost comes there, and more being saved. They were indeed fishers of men. The Holy Spirit uh, would set apart Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul and Barnabas, and then Paul and Silas, and, and they would go, and they would be fishers of men. And, and, and then Paul would make himself his way to Rome under the providence of God to the end. So, so we see it, that, yes, they would be fishers of men. But there's another image here as well, not simply fishers of men, but also shepherds of sheep. That's what we read here in these opening verses 15 through 17 or so. There's this notion of shepherd and sheep, another image, and another image we see in the book of Acts because you see, as the fish were gathered, the image changes, just to wreak havoc on you English measures, uh, change the metaphor, in the middle from fish to sheep. Uh, and, and that's what happens, you see, that there would be elders who would be appointed as the church would form in all the churches to shepherd, you see, the sheep. Fish make really bad image for anything community-wise, right? I'm sure there's a marine biologist there somewhere who says, no, you just don't know fish. And that's true. Don't want to, so don't email me. But, but you see, uh, it moves the sheep because, you see, that's been the image throughout the Scripture, really. We read this morning, could there be more comforting, wonderful words to hear, to say, to believe that the Lord is my shepherd. Wow. We know intuitively really about shepherds. We, we get that image. We understand that, that shepherds lead, that shepherds protect, that shepherds nurture, that shepherds bind up wounds and Shepherds seek sheep that are lost and bring them back to the fold. Shepherds have this sense of wanting everybody to be together and everybody to be safe and, and everybody to be on the same page and everybody to be growing and healthy and learning together. That, that, that sense of being uh, a shepherd and to realize that's, that's, that's how God understands, at least in part, his relationship with us. He's the shepherd uh, we're the sheep. The question then is, how does he shepherd the sheep? Well, as we read through the Old Covenant, we realize that, that God has given various ones 
to be shepherds in that context. There were the elders of Israel that overlooked each tribe in such a way that they would, they would manage the affairs of, of each tribe. There were priests who would be shepherds, really, spiritual shepherds to bring people into the very presence of God, to, to bind up spiritual wounds, to, to bring words of forgiveness of sin, make sacrifice for the people, all of that, that sense of they, they would be the shepherds in that regard, prophets to shepherd as well. They would, they would come with the very word of God to teach and to nurture spiritually that way and to remind the people of, of God's covenant promises and his blessings and his curses, all of that, to, to keep them walking. That was the job of their prophet to keep them walking before the Lord and kings would shepherd as well because not only were there spiritual needs but there were political and and civic and and physical material needs as well and it was the king's job to keep the people protected from outside enemies and and to enable them to flourish as people within Israel so so these shepherds would come and on behalf of God if you will they were to shepherd the sheep the difficulty was the problem was that they failed. They were selfish. They thought more of themselves often than the sheep. And so the people of God were found wandering. The people of God were found malnourished. The people of God were found in the hands of their enemies. And so God made a declaration that he would come and that he would come and be their shepherd. Ezekiel chapter um, 34, uh, God says this, Behold, I, verse 11, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and and, and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravens and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. They shall feed, the mount, feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them injustice and then verse 23 says i will set up over them one shepherd my servant david and he shall feed them he shall feed them and be their shepherd and i the lord will be their god and my servant david will be prince among them i'm the lord i've spoken so you can only imagine that all the hairs on the backs of all the necks that would raise when jesus would announce I'm the good shepherd. God in the flesh. God said he was going to come and rescue. God said he was coming and care for his sheep. And there he is in Jesus, right there, up close and personal, the good shepherd. He says, I'm going to call my sheep. They know my voice. They'll hear it. When they hear it, they'll come. I'll gather them from the nations, you see. 
my, my sheep. Well, that's wonderful, but now he's going to leave. And so the question is, who will shepherd the sheep of God? Peter, interesting character in the New Testament, isn't he? Interesting from a number of angles, but I think most especially this, that Jesus had made significant, important, unbelievable promises to him. You might remember when Peter was first called by Jesus to follow him, he said this, he, that is, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he brought Peter to Jesus. That's chapter 1, verse 42. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which means Peter. Kephas or Cephas, as some would say, uh, is the Aramaic. It means rock. Peter, the Greek, it means rock. And you have this man, Simon, Son of John, and now Jesus is making a declaration about him. He's saying, you're going to be a rock, the rock. In fact, Jesus even, it's more explicit. You might remember there was an occasion in the life of Jesus when he was asking his disciples uh, about two people had said, were saying that Jesus is who, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, right? I'd already given him that handle, that name. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you, no matter how you slice it, that you refers to Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I don't know. That seems pretty wild. Now, it's easy to make too much of this, I think our Roman Catholic friends do. But it's easy to make too little of it. Peter never really, it seems, understood himself to be the vicar of Christ, the very presence of Christ on the earth or any of that. In fact, he saw himself as simply one of the shepherds in First Peter chapter 5. Verse 1, Peter, I think, gives commentary on how he understood this. He said, so I, that is, Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He says, you could say this, I exhort all the shepherds among you as a fellow shepherd, just one of them, 
and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not as under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that is Jesus, obviously, you receive the unfading crown of, crown of glory. So Peter understood himself to be one amongst all the other elders, all the other shepherds, all the other apostles, if you will, but all the other shepherds in the church. Elders had been appointed in various churches, those to whom would, who would be reading this letter. And Peter wasn't putting himself above them in any way. He was just saying, I'm one among you. There's a chief shepherd, and we're all under the chief shepherd. And so that's how he would understand him. But still, there are great promises made to Peter because there's a sense in which the keys were given to him. And, and we see the keys to the kingdom of heaven utilized by Peter to open up the gospel. Again, we mentioned that Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And Peter plays a huge role at every one of those points. On the day of Pentecost, who opens up the kingdom of God? It's Peter as he preaches. His opportunity is called upon to preach that very first Christian sermon in this Christian in the sense post-resurrection, post coming of the Holy Spirit. And he preaches and he opens it up to the people in Jerusalem and Judea. And then in Samaria, he and Peter and John go down and, and they open up uh, uh, the gospel, if you will, to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles as he meets with the household of Cornelius, this one who's not a Jew. And so, so, so you, we see all of that. Now that's all coming. But, but you see in his mind, no doubt, and in the minds of the disciples, after Peter denies Jesus, How's all this going to play out? I mean, you remember that scene? Jesus, or Peter is asked three different times as Jesus is being tried and convicted of his false charges. You're one of his. No, 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 I'm not. Uh, you, you were like, no, 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 no. You're one of his. No, 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 no. Is that great scene on the last denial as the rooster crows Luke tells us that Jesus and Peter exchange a glance and it says that Peter wept bitterly now now after Jesus resurrected and prior to this time uh, Peter and Jesus had seen each other three times we have the two Sunday evening occasions, Easter Sunday the next week, and then that announcement that, that Jesus had appeared to Peter as well. And so, so those times, but, but, but now on this occasion, John wants to pull all that back and say, now, I, I need to, to show you what happened, what happened to Peter. There's much here for the church. There's much here for all of us. And so Jesus comes to Peter with this one question three times. And well, sometimes it's difficult to read into a narrative. We, we just get the, the facts of a situation and we ask the question, what does this really mean? And, and sometimes we go all over the map with that and it's easy to do that in a, in a, in a situation, in a story, in, a, in an event and, and try to read into it all kinds of things. But, but could it be more clear, really? Three times Peter denies Jesus. Three times Jesus comes to Peter and says, let's restore here. 
for each denial, an opportunity for you to say, yes, I love you. And so that's what takes place here. What a great gift to Peter from Jesus to deal with it, this elephant in the room. Uh, I mean, you can only imagine, can't you, that, that, that Peter has this denial on his mind and he sees Jesus and don't you think he's thinking, well, do I bring this up? You know, do, do I mention it? Maybe he forgot. Maybe it's not that big a deal. Oh, it feels like a big deal. Right? And so Jesus brings it up. Peter, Peter. Does he love you? Yes, yes, yes. And see this. So many times in our lives that we deny knowing Jesus. And when we know this forgiveness stuff, we wonder, don't we, is it real? And, and maybe if I'm forgiven, can I really be restored? Can I, can, I really, can I really fulfill the purpose to which he's called me after I, after I did that? I'll never forget, and it's obvious I'll never forget it because I'm going to tell you about it right now. I'll never forget a time in my own life. This was a long time ago. I was in my mid-twenties, a couple of years ago. And I uh, was in graduate school at Florida State University studying economics. I was in the library at the university, and I was... Where I usually was in the library, which was not the economics section, if you will, of books, I was in the section of books with all the Bible commentaries. That was one of the first clues I had, that maybe that wasn't, this economics thing wasn't going to be my life. But anyway, so I was pulling out all these great books. You could even find them in a university library. I was pulling out these great books that take back to my study kill. And as I, I did that, I, I noticed coming in my direction, but not yet seeing me coming in my direction was a guy who was in my department. He was really smart, and he was kind of the departmental atheist. And so before we could make eye contact, I went the other way because I knew that if he saw me with these books, he'd ask me what I had, and I would tell him what I had, and he would either ridicule me or enter into a debate. And I would just have assumed at that point in time he not know I was a Christian. That one can be restored, at least in my life, is obvious. I always find me being a pastor to be quite ironic. Peter would realize that even in these denials, you see, What a great gift to Peter. What a great gift to us as we go through difficulties and and we deny the Lord in various kinds of ways. Every time we sin, there's a sense in which we deny him. And and, and other times as as well, I suppose we can can lay that out. But but to realize that that there is forgiveness and as repentance comes and we renew again, yes, Lord, you know, even though I did that, you know everything, you know 
you know that I love you. What a great gift to the other disciples who were there on that occasion. Not only did they see Peter being restored, and so when Peter would step up in various times, they would say, that's okay, we know he denied him, but but Jesus has restored him. Uh, And just for them as well to realize, they scattered on that night. Don't you wonder what they were thinking? Well, we didn't do what Peter did. There's some consolation in that isn't there. We know that consolation. I didn't do what they did, you know. But they knew it. They each one had done. See, Peter would learn a deep lesson through all of this. He would describe it, I think, in his epistle in First Peter and uh, chapter 5, 1 verse, verse 6. I think this is what he learned. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Peter was being deeply humbled by the Lord more perhaps than we might know. It says that the third time he was grieved that Jesus had asked him again, do you love me? But you see, the the real humbling part is in how Jesus began his questioning. Notice in um, the right chapter here. Notice in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What are the these? Could be that Jesus was looking around at all the boats and all the nets and all of that, the whole fishing stuff, and said, Peter, do you love me more than fishing? Do you love me more than your previous profession? Do you love me more than, than all, of, all of this stuff that's here? And, and surely, uh, Peter should love him more than that, if you will, and be willing to leave all of that. He had been willing to leave that before. But that doesn't seem to fit here. That doesn't seem to be the real deal going on here. Or he could be, Jesus saying, looking around at... At, at, at the other disciples, do you love me more than you love these guys? Certainly he should in that sense, but, but yet the whole book of John is about how we're to love one another, and so, so that would seem to kind of rock that. Most likely this. Peter, do you still think you love me more than they love me? i put it like that because of how his denial really transpired. In Matthew, in chapter 23, we have that incident uh, being uh, set up. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 26. This was after they had been in the room together and Jesus had shared with them, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, that is, all of these, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Bless him. Jesus said to him, truly I, say, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will de- deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Oh, 
all the disciples said the same. Being humbled, isn't it, to realize that even if you're Peter, you're no better than the rest of them. Even if you're the one that's been declared the rock, even if you're the one to whom the keys of the kingdom will be given, it isn't because you're better than the rest of them. And you see, if ever we're going to shepherd any sheep, we must identify very closely with the sheep to realize we haven't been called to shepherd them because we're better than they are. So Peter was grieved. Do I have to hear this again? (laughs) Yeah. But you see, in his being humbled, and that is to really realize his own heart, there would be an exalting. Once we realize, once we get it, once we realize that we're sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy, once we realize that's true of us just like it is true of everyone, then we're ready, you see, to lead, to shepherd, ready to be a parent, ready to be a husband, willing to be a Sunday school teacher, or ready to be a friend that comes alongside another friend to help, or ready really to love the sheep. And the way Jesus puts it, he says, Peter, do you love me? See, I would have expected Jesus to say, Here, here's the deal, Peter, I want you to shepherd the sheep, so do you love the sheep? That would make perfect sense to me. How can you shepherd the sheep without loving the sheep? It's certainly true that to be a good shepherd, you must love the sheep. Jesus loves his sheep. He's the good shepherd. If you're going to shepherd the sheep, tend to the sheep, feed the sheep, then you should love the sheep. And that's true. But that's not how Jesus puts it. He puts it first by saying, do you love me? In other words, if you're really going to be able to feed the sheep... If you're really going to be able to love the sheep, then first, Peter, you must really love me, do you? How much is made about various Greek words, a couple of them that John uses here to translate Jesus and Peter's discussion. But but really, if you read through the Gospel of John, you realize John uses these words interchangeably all the time. That's not the point. The point really is, Peter, do you love me? Because you see, you can't feed the sheep unless you really love Jesus. Now, why is that true? Well, yesterday, I, yesterday morning, I had occasion to um, be a part of a group of people examining various uh, number of young men for ministry. And uh, I had various responsibilities in that, but one of them, one of the responsibilities was to give them a charge. I always like that expression. When you charge someone, I feel like I have a cattle prod in me. You know, I'm going to give you a charge. Uh, And uh, and, and the charge I gave to them, uh, I had found in, in a commentary, actually, by a man by the name of Calvin, 
of Geneva, John Calvin from some centuries ago, commenting on this passage. So I read this. I read this to them as their charge. Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? By these words, Christ meant that no man can faithfully serve the church and employ himself in feeding the flock if he does not look higher than to men. The office of feeding is in itself laborious and troublesome, since nothing is more difficult than to keep men under the yoke of God, among whom there are so many who are weak, others who are wanton and unsteady, others who are dull and sluggish, and others who are slow and unteachable. I did mention parenthetically that that did not include any of you. Satan now brings forward as many causes of offense as he can that he may destroy or weaken the courage of a good pastor. In addition to this, we must take into account the ingratitude of many and other causes of disgust. No man, therefore, will steadily persevere in the discharge of this office unless the love of Christ shall reign in his heart in such a manner that forgetful of himself and devoting himself entirely to Christ, he overcomes every obstacle. My charge to these young men was to study to the end that they loved Christ, to pray to the end that they loved Christ, to receive counsel to the end that they loved Christ. Because that's all that sustains us, really, in loving one another. As a parent... What sustains your love for your children? It probably isn't their gratefulness. Right? It probably isn't because they jump out of bed in the morning and say, I can't wait to be obedient to my parents. I, I can't wait to sit at their feet and seek their wisdom and, 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 and marvel and everything that they have to tell me, right? Yeah. If you love Christ, though, and he calls you out of love for him to love your children, your love for your children can be sustained. How do you love your spouse? Well, I I suspect there are times when your spouse is lovable. But I suspect, speaking as a spouse, that I've not always been lovable. I remember a time early in our marriage when Karen said to me, if I didn't love Christ, I don't think I could stay with you. See, her love for Christ sustained, really, her love for me. And that's the way that it is, you see. Because we will disappoint one another. We will aggravate one another. And so the sustained love, you see, comes from loving Christ. Friendships are sustained by love of Christ. 
to, to shepherd anyone, to, to really feed them, to care for them, when they need caring, and, and they may not want caring, but they need caring, uh, then you see what sustains that is not their gratefulness, not their desires, not their coming, but, but, but it's, it's the fact that you have a higher love, a love for one higher, this one who is indeed Christ, you love him. You see, that's true in all our relationships. And Jesus would say to Peter, now your loving of me and your shepherding of the sheep will lead one day to your death. Now it's a real shepherd, isn't it? One who isn't a hireling. A hireling sees the wolf coming and runs. Says, I don't get paid enough for this. But a shepherd says, I'll give myself. And that's what love really is, isn't it? Love really is a sense of dying. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, be my disciple. You must take up your cross daily. There must be an execution. And what's being executed is your pride, Peter. What has to be executed is your pride. You're thinking yourselves better than the others, that you love me more than these. Love me. No, 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 Peter. That has to be killed. That has to be executed. If you're really going to love me, and not just think of yourself, if you're really going to love me and thus love them. So, so, Peter, that all has to be shot. That all has to be executed. That all has to be crucified. That all has to be put to death. Uh, and you will die in your transmission of this. Do you love me, Peter? Yeah, Peter... I don't know the intonation of his voice. I, I don't know how this came out. I don't know what's going through his mind. But, but he really did know that he really did love Jesus. And Jesus wasn't criticizing him. Jesus wasn't saying, no, you don't. He was affirming, really. Yes, you do love me. Even though you're a denier, <laughs> you do love me. I know that. This hymn, I'll close with this, by William Cooper, a hymn writer of some time ago. The last couple of verses of a long hymn that we should never sing because the tune is really bad. But, but it begins with this expression from Jesus says, thou shalt see my glory soon when the work of grace is done. Partner of my throne shall be. Say, poor sinner, lovest thou me? And here's the response. Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet I love thee and adore, oh, for grace to love thee more. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us, that you would give us grace to love you more as you humble us, as we see our sin, and we see how we've denied you, and we see how you've forgiven us, forgiven much, enable us then to love you much and then to love others much as well. Father, forgive us when we've failed, but restore us as we repent. God, you've loved us well. We know that. We give you thanks for 
babies born among us. Uh, Levi, Peter, Heingardner. Coraline, Jeanette, Bands. Maxwell, James, Huff. Father, there may be others out there too because they seem to be born quite often. We give you thanks. Give you thanks for the healing that you bring and the help that you bring to us. We give you thanks for the comfort that you bring in the midst of grief. We give you thanks for the supply that you bring to us in the midst of unemployment and difficulty. We pray, God, that you would use us both as fishers and as shepherds, that we may be your witnesses and that we may care for all those who believe. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.